we are obligated to seek answers directly from the man who set this all in motion. And every American is entitled to those answers so we can act now to protect our republic. So this afternoon, I am offering this resolution that the committee direct the chairman to issue a subpoena for relevant documents and testimony under oath from Donald John Trump in connection with the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol. That was Wyoming Congresswoman Liz Cheney revealing the January 6th committee's final card, a subpoena to Donald Trump to testify and provide documents about his role in the events that led to the attack on the U.S. Capitol. It was a surprise move by the panel coming at the end of its final public hearing in which it revealed some new details about alarming intelligence warnings to the Secret Service about the potential for violence that day, as well as compelling footage that day as Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Democratic leader Chuck Schumer huddled about how to get the business of the day certifying Joe Biden's victory in the presidential election back on track. The hearing, like all its earliest ones, got gavel-to-gavel coverage on cable TV and played big in major newspapers across the country. But it hasn't moved the needle in terms of public opinion, and just as important, has it brought the Justice Department any closer to bringing criminal charges against the former president? We'll discuss with Matt Miller, former Chief of Public Affairs of the Justice Department under Democratic Attorney General Eric Holder, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. I will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. So we all were watching every minute of the uh, last public hearing of the January 6th committee on Thursday. Again, lots of compelling testimony, uh, lots of compelling footage, most particularly, I think, the video from we now know Fort McNair, where congressional leaders were evacuated that day with Pelosi and Schumer and others huddling about what to do and deal, how to get the Congress back in session to do its job. I think that a lot of people have very different views about Pelosi and Schumer uh, and the Democratic leaders, but uh, this was one case where it was really uh, gripping to see how these, you know, these people were really trying to do their job dealing with, you know, the most monstrous of circumstances. Yeah, I, I thought it was pretty powerful imagine. and impressive. I mean, here she is. I think she was 80 years old at the time. And she, you know, was, you know, calm, clearly deeply affected by what was going on, but in charge and kind of a kind of a badass. And I think what was particularly uh, two things struck me beyond just the sort of poise and how they were dealing with uh, such a difficult situation. One was um, the bipartisanship of it all. I mean, the conversations with Pence, for example, and I think there were also, convers- you know, McConnell and, and, and other Republican leaders um, who I don't know if they were, I don't think they were there, uh, but they were in contact. And the other was what the committee did in splicing together footage 
of the leadership. By the way, that video was taken by Alessandra Pelosi, um, her right. daughter, who's a pretty uh, gifted documentary filmmaker. And uh, I used to see her around uh, Washington, um, always, uh, you know, taking videos of, of, of things. She's sort of a, a constantly taking <laughs> video. So that was interesting. But splicing those images together with the masses, the crowd, the the assaulters outside, one woman saying, bring her out, bring her out, you know, and so seeing those two things juxtaposed against each other were pretty was pretty powerful. I was particularly struck by a few moments in it. The, the first is when she's on the phone with, I think it's the governor of Virginia, asking him to send in the National Guard, and then kind of later not too far later, kind of turning perplexed and wondering how the National Guard and other kind of law enforcement institutions would have reacted if the same thing was happening at the White House or at the Pentagon and being just utterly perplexed that they were having to wait that long for any sort of decisive action by law enforcement. Uh, The other funny moment, of course, funny is, I guess, in air quotes, is when she was uh, speaking to the attorney general and asking him to tell the president to uh, to please do his job. There was something a little alarming about having to call up the attorney general to beg him to ask the president to take this seriously. Uh, But it was extraordinarily compelling footage. And real evidence, I suppose, puts to the lie the argument of a fair number of people that Nancy Pelosi is the reason that the National Guard didn't come soon and that she didn't do her job trying to prevent this. Wait a second. Aren't those two separate questions? I mean, the allegations against Pelosi, which have been unsupported, I, you know, I'm not endorsing them, but the the issue has been what was done before January 6th, before that day to prepare, given the multiple warnings that we're learning about the potential for violence that day. And, you know, this, as we'll get into with our guest, this is um, a question that the committee didn't really explore. Who knew what, when about the warnings about violence and what the Oath Keepers and the others were preparing for and why wasn't more done? But look, there's a lot to talk about here. We've got a great guest um, who we've had on before to talk about this, Matt Miller. So let's get to it. We've now got with us Matt Miller, former chief of public affairs at the Justice Department. Matt, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thanks for having me. We are talking January 6th. Uh, They wrapped up their public hearings on Thursday. What did you make of them? And most importantly, I guess, does this bring us any closer to what the Justice Department will ultimately do about Donald Trump and his involvement in the events of that day? So two very different questions. I thought as a final session, it was a good summation of what the committee has found and revealed revealed to the public over the course of its previous hearings. There wasn't a lot of new information with the exception, I will say, of one area that I do think deserves a lot more public scrutiny and investigative scrutiny. And that's what officials in law enforcement knew or should have known in advance of January 6th and what they did, or I think probably more importantly, didn't do to prevent the assault on the Capitol or to prepare for the assault on the Capitol. 
so there wasn't a lot new except for that piece, but I thought it was a pretty well laid out chronological summation that points the finger at Trump and his allies very clearly knowing they were going to steal the election before the election are going to try to steal the election if they lost and then putting in place a plan to do it. With respect to what the Justice Department does, I don't think it has much of an impact. And I think the question of whether they do it, send a criminal referral doesn't have much of an impact. It's not like Justice Department doesn't know what's happened here, like they haven't been watching the hearings and they aren't already now fully underway in their investigation. At the same time this hearing was going on, the former vice president's chief of staff, Mark Short, was before a grand jury in D.C. So the Justice Department investigation is moving on its own track parallel to the hearings. And I don't think at this stage, one has any impact on the other. Matt, well, first of all, I do think we should talk about what you raised at the outset here about what law enforcement knew and what they did or didn't do about it. I think it's a really interesting question that the committee, you know, until yesterday, I guess they didn't have a lot of evidence, but it's it's a question they didn't really pursue very aggressively. And I think it bears, you know, talking about why that is. But in terms of new information, or at least pulling it all together in a way that was really compelling, I thought maybe the most significant part of the hearings yesterday was how they hammered away at Trump's state of mind, and particularly the number of times that he seemed to have acknowledged that he lost the election. Not just that people like Bill Barr and you know his family and others told him he lost, but that he acknowledged he lost, and crucially, that he even took action on the basis of that knowledge, i.e., you know, at one point ordering that all U.S. troops be withdrawn from Somalia and Afghanistan, which, of course, didn't happen because they ignored him. But to me, I think that's, you know, compelling evidence, not to say that it's going to make a, a difference necessarily in the Justice Department prosecution. Although I will say that, you know, that is information that Fonnie Willis in Georgia is going to be listening to very carefully because it goes directly to her case about that call to Ravsenberger. It may even go to the, uh, you know, the fake electors case, because the idea was they were supposed to be contingent, you know, that was supposed to be a contingency plan in case he he ended up winning. Well, he acknowledged Can that I he just didn't break win. in? Because I, I, this is a time I actually totally agree with you. I thought that that <laughs> order was the most, the strongest evidence I've seen to date that Trump knew his days in office were numbered because he's, you know, directing that all U.S. troops get, get moved out of Somalia and Afghanistan immediately before <laughs> January 20. To me, more so than all the warnings, I, I completely agree with you. It's still circumstantial. It's not direct evidence that he knew his days in office were numbered, but it's pretty compelling circumstantial evidence. It certainly goes to his state of mind, which, as I think you both are getting at, would underlie any criminal case, right? It would go to showing that that he knew he lost and, which, and, and show his intent. Although, I thought that was a, a really good point about him sending that order. It would be pretty easy to rebut is, no, he believed he won the election, but he was taking a contingency plan in case the courts continued to throw, you know, to, to not hear his case fairly and you know proceed as they should. And so this was a contingency in case he had to leave on January 20th, even though he know, knew he won. So I... You should be a defense lawyer. Well, yeah, I should be a a lawyer first, I guess, (laughs) a defense attorney. So so I I thought it was pretty compelling and, and, you know, but also something you could rebut. I do think, though, the uh, showing all the all of the evidence about what he knew and what he thought 
was interesting for another reason though, and that was to build to their final, the final action they took, which is to subpoena Trump. I, I think is very unlikely for a lot of reasons never to show up to testify. But if they do go to court in this short window they probably have before they, they lose the majority, not certain, but probably, there's a test the Supreme Court laid out in the Mazars case of what you need to show to, to subpoena a president, to successfully subpoena a president. And one of the things is information that you can get from nowhere else. And they clearly were trying to meet that test in the final summation of all the people that took the fifth about their conversations with him. Well, his state of mind and what he knew and what he believed is also information that you could, while you can somewhat get it from other people, it's most squarely would be a question presented to him. Well, let me ask about that subpoena, because what's interesting is how long we went in this conversation before any of us reached the question of the subpoena. A lot of people are dismissing it as a, a kind of a stunt more than anything else. Where on the scale of stunt to substantive and good move do you put the uh, the final action of the committee yesterday? I mean, I don't think it's a stunt. If it's a stunt, everything the committee's doing in some sense is a stunt because it's not like the committee can prosecute him and hold him accountable. The, the committee's job is to make a, a is to find information and make a public case about their findings. And if he doesn't come and testify, they are able to, to offer a pretty compelling argument that he has not rebutted, even though he had a chance, all of the evidence that we presented against him. So I think it was important and useful for that purpose, for making the, the public argument that they're trying to make. I don't think there's any chance that he's going to testify. Um, he's shown pretty clearly in all of the, you know, you hear this sometimes, oh, this will be this big audience. He'll have this chance. Well, we have demonstrated evidence in investigation after investigation after investigation from the Mueller case to most recently the New York attorney general case that he will do anything possible to avoid testifying. I'm sure he'll avoid, he'll do anything to avoid testifying here. And he's a target of multiple criminal investigations. <laughs> yeah. He it would can't be, it would testify. Be, it would be crazy. It would be no, he's a, he and a and, and he could take the and, fifth and, and, and an inverterate liar, right? Yeah. He could not show up, and and could, it's not just that that he would he would put himself in jeopardy by revealing things that would be used against him in, in other cases. He would create new cases against himself when he came <laughs> and didn't tell the truth. So it would make no sense. And the committee. I think they could, the committee could successfully enforce their subpoena if they had time, but that would take a district court and an appellate court and ultimately the Supreme Court, and they don't have that kind of time. So a couple points. Uh, first of all, uh, picking up on your initial point about the new evidence about all the warnings, particularly that the Secret Service was picking up about the potential for violence that day, you know, tips that there's going to be, that people are coming there with guns, with plans to do violent things. The committee cast this all in the context of why didn't Donald Donald Trump should have known that there was going to be a potential for violence, which is true. But it didn't go anywhere towards some of the core questions about where was the FBI? Where was uh, the Justice Department? What did leaders of the Secret Service know about these warnings and what steps they were taking? You know, those are important questions, irrespective of Donald Trump's culpability here, that a lot of people would have expected a real January 6th investigation to delve into. Yet they were so focused on just making the case against Trump for good reasons that they ignored what I think it would have been a important responsibility of any investigation. 
Yeah, it is really important. I suspect they just made the decision that they didn't have the bandwidth to answer that really hard, detailed question when they're looking at everything else. I mean, what they have undertaken is a massive investigation anyway. This isn't to some extent, it's overlapping, but separate in some extent, because in my mind, it involves three big questions. One, was there just the basic law enforcement failure that we've seen in other cases? Most most famously 9-11, the failure to connect the dots, right? There's information that comes into one silo of law enforcement. It doesn't get shared with other silos. And so leadership doesn't properly prepare. That's one kind of overarching question. And that happens all the time. And that would be one explanation. And it would be terrible in a law enforcement failure but it's the kind of thing we're used to seeing from time. And it's in, to some extent a bureaucratic feeling. But then I think there are two harder questions to answer that, that we need to at least investigate. The first of those is, was there sort of command influence that led to that failure? Was the, you know, from the president on down saying, you know, pushing um, this idea that he won the election, does that lead law enforcement to kind of pause a little bit, not investigate something that the, the president was not in, interested in investigating or not, in, in, not interested in investigating people who were supporters of the president and angering him. And then the third, which is a really disturbing question is, is there bias in law enforcement that led them not to take this seriously the way that they would take, say, a Black Lives Matter protest seriously? And, and I think it's hard to answer. It, that doesn't necessarily mean a conscious decision that there are a bunch of MAGA supporters in the FBI that support the insurrection. You don't have to go that far to say the FBI and the rest of law enforcement would have looked at this a lot differently if there were thousands of African-American men coming to Washington to protest. It's undoubtable that they would have. And so untangling that's really hard. And I have to say there, there is an investigation into this question or at least into this area. I don't know what specifically it's looking at, ongoing. The Department of Justice Inspector General announced an investigation into what DOJ knew and what they did about the information in January of 2021. Here we are 21 months later. And you know, where is it? It's a, it's a problem I've had with the inspector general going back years and years and years, which is that office takes far too long to answer questions that we need information on, not three years after the fact, as is often the case. I can't believe I'm agreeing with everything that's being said <laughs> well, here. Right? I, 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 we got to end this podcast soon because. Uh, I think, Matt, you made a lot of really interesting points. And I think all of those questions should be looked at. If I had to guess, I mean, I think the, the, the bias question in particular, but if I had to guess, a significant part of it is kind of a signal to noise problem, which is there are so many threats coming in. Uh, the volume in, you know, Mike and I, we've seen this in some of our reporting in Georgia. It's hard to distinguish between what's what's real and what isn't, what's a crime and, and what's speech. And and they're just kind of overwhelmed. And then in terms of the committee, I think they probably saw going down that avenue as uh, ultimately um, distracting from, you know, kind of the main event here, keeping the focus on on Trump himself Politically, but also in terms of the presentation of the case, that's probably the right decision. I mean, Isakoff and I have been part of God knows how many, you know, Washington feeding frenzies over intelligence failures 
And so those kinds of stories have a way of really distracting you from the main main event. Well, but, I'm but sure wait that's a second. Wouldn't it have been really useful to have Chris Ray, the head of the FBI, up there answering a lot of tough questions along these lines about what the FBI Absolutely. About these I, I, it would be yeah. useful. It would be, you know, ultimately good for the republic. But they prioritized. They made certain yeah, choices here because they had the a priority, which which was ex, you know exposing Trump because he more than anyone else was responsible for all of this, not law enforcement. And they are not the only committee in Congress. There are other committees that could you know they could carve this question off and give it over to the Judiciary Committee or the Homeland Security Committee and let them look into it. But that hasn't happened either. With that in mind, why don't we step back and ask ourselves, since this is presumably the last public hearing of the committee, the difference between the days before the committee began their hearings and today. By at least one metric, the committee has had virtually no impact, which is that the overall approval rating for Trump literally hasn't changed a point, much less a percentage of a point since the committee hearings began. So stepping back then, what do you think the overall impact of the committee has been? So I will say one on the public impact. I don't agree that it's had zero impact. I think it has there was an there was a chance, you know, there's a, a bit of a political realignment that's happened under Trump in that, you know, a lot of working class voters primarily white, but not only white, have moved towards the Republican Party. And the kind of upper income white suburbanites have moved that traditionally voted Republican have moved away from it. And I think there was a chance after Trump that some of those voters, the suburban voters, could move back to the Republican Party. And the Republican Party was trying to make outreach to them. And this the, the committee hearings, I think, have really hardened those suburban voters as Democrats. And you see that in polling that that they're Democrats now or voting Democratic, even if they don't say they are. And I think they're likely to say that way because all of the evidence that the, among other things, but all the evidence that the committee put forward for them really appalled them at a time when they might be unhappy with Biden's economic plan. It has pushed Trump into the foreground in a way that has continued to push them away from the Republican Party. And I think that's that's important. You can say the committee shouldn't do politics, but this is, you know, it's important to continue to expose that one of the parties doesn't support democracy the way the, the other does. And then I think the other one is really hard to answer. There are two factual things we know. One, the committee started, it's it started revealing the results of its investigation earlier this year. And as their hearings ramped up and they disclosed more and more evidence of potential criminality around the president, the Justice Department, which hadn't been taking any overt steps, subpoenaing people to the grand jury, executing search warrants, started taking those steps late spring, early summer of this year. Did the committee influence the Justice Department to act in a way it wasn't going to before? Or was the Justice Department always going to get here and it just took its time? We don't know the answer to that question. It's certainly possible that the committee pushed the Justice Department into taking actions it wasn't going to take otherwise and 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 successfully exerted political pressure on them to do so. But outside of some people in the Justice Department who obviously aren't talking, we don't know. Well, as a former Justice Department guy, let me ask you, because They've got the January 6th investigation, as you point out. There was even grand jury testimony while this committee hearing was going on. But they've also got the Mar-a-Lago 
investigation, which does seem to be getting some traction. There was really important reporting this week about how a valet to Trump, a guy by the name of um, Walt Nauda, who I don't think we've ever heard of before, is the witness who told the Justice Department that he was moving documents out of the storage room at the direction of Trump, or so it has been reported. That seems to me to be the kind of testimony that they would want if they're going to bring a criminal case against Trump. So here's my question to you as a former Justice Department guy. Do they have the bandwidth or the will to bring two criminal cases against Donald Trump? Or if they've got this direct testimony about Mar-a-Lago, do they just do that and let perhaps Fonnie Willis take care of the January 6th stuff? <laughs> I'll answer it a little bit differently. So as you know, I've said it on your podcast before, I've been a bit of a, a skeptic that there would be a prosecution of the former president for the January 6th case. I think it's a really tough case, not because the facts are great for him, but because no one's ever been prosecuted for this type of behavior before. So whenever you start using criminal laws for new things that they haven't been used in the past, you open yourself up to a bunch of legal challenges and mischief at the appellate level and eventually the Supreme Court level, not because they love, not because they're biased for Donald Trump and love him, but because they may not support using the criminal law in this fashion. So I think it would be, it's a risky case to bring. And so if you're sitting at the Justice Department and you're looking at the January 6th case, which is moving along and you're thinking, we have to, we have to, his behavior is abhorrent here. We have to find a way to hold him criminally liable for this. But man, this case looks tough. And we might roll the dice and bring a case and it gets thrown out in the middle of the 2024 election. And here we look like fools and he looks stronger. It's a tough decision. Parallel to that, you have this case moving about classified documents where his behavior is significantly looks significantly more the, the set of facts for him is significantly worse than a number of people who have been prosecuted for these violations in the past there's no question that this is a criminal violation both the mishandling of classified documents and the obstruction around it if i were them i think the case looks incredibly strong uh, around classified documents i would bring this case i would bring it as soon as i have all the evidence I would let the January 6th investigation play out. And if eventually I get to the place where I'm comfortable that it's as open and shut as the Mar-a-Lago case, I'll bring that. But in the meantime, I bring the, the, the classified case and take him off the field. What do you think the timeline might be? I know this is in the realm of speculation, but in a case like the Mar-a-Lago case, in terms of you know actually bringing charges and then legal challenges, how long would it take to actually get to trial? I assume a trial itself wouldn't actually take that long because it's not that complicated a case. So uh, I think, I mean, I would think absent, and this is a big absent, absent any sort of grand jury litigation. So what I mean by that is, let's say they subpoena witnesses into the grand jury that they really need to bring an indictment. And those witnesses fight it. And that takes months to litigate. Absent that kind of litigation, I think they're at the point where they could probably bring a case in the spring. I mean, they have a lot of evidence in this case. We've seen some of it come come forward. And it's pretty clear that that, that story this week about the valet, the former valet for him, tells me they've got a lot of more evidence that we haven't seen because they've been doing a lot of interviews. And then, you know, from spring to 
you know, take a year to get a trial. So you're looking at spring of, of 2024, maybe. And this is not a case where it presents fresh novel legal questions like the January 6th would case would that could be fairly quick by legal standards, fairly quick. <laughs> but just picking up on your point about potential grand jury challenges, you have this question of the lawyers, right? One, Christina yeah. Bob, who signed the declaration saying to the best of her knowledge or what she's been informed, there are no more documents in. She says she was told to sign that or that what she said was based on information she got from another lawyer, this guy, Evan Corcoran. Now, he would seem to be a key witness in any investigation, but he's a lawyer. There's attorney-client privilege issues. They would have to make, presumably, a crime-fraud exception argument uh, to any challenge. That could take some time, no? It absolutely could, and maybe that pushes back to next summer or something. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if they've already requested his testimony. I, I think they're, though they don't have to, Trump's not on the ballot. They don't have to think about this investigation in terms of the midterm election. I, I, th I think they probably are, but it wouldn't surprise me if we find out after the election that they've requested his testimony. You know, the way you do this, you request the attorney's testimony. He says no, then you send a grand jury subpoena that he or she can contest. Wouldn't surprise a grand jury subpoena is an overt act that you wouldn't take before the election. Wouldn't surprise me if they've requested his testimony and there's a grand jury subpoena like three days after the midterms for him. So here's the legal question that Isakoff and I were talking about a couple of days ago off the podcast, uh, which is if, you know, let, let's say indictments in any of these cases, you know, take, you know, you know another you know, year before they happen, and then and then it's another year before uh, you get to trial. And by that time, Donald Trump has won the Republican nomination and perhaps even <laughs> been reelected president. He was will have been charged before he became president again, so he was not a sitting president. But based on Justice Department guidance, based on the OLC opinion, can he be tried? as a sitting president, even if he was charged as an ex-president? You know, the, the legal answer is probably not because that OLC opinion was about sitting, you know, it, uh, in a big way centered around the president not being able to go to trial, right? Because he's busy. But in an effectual matter, it would matter because he would appoint an AG who would dismiss the case and a, an OLC head who would write a new opinion saying whatever the hell he wanted. <laughs> yeah, fair point. <laughs> so fair point. at some point, you know, you control the justice it's department. It's the ultimate get out of jail card, right? Yeah. You right. Know, get president. elected president. Run yeah, for president. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Which is probably, you know, is I think one of the reasons he's likely to run. Not the only one, but a big one. Or Elon Musk might be thinking about it too. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of folks. So let's get back to January 6th and its political impact for a moment, because uh, just picking up on Victoria's question, I noticed that there was a, a poll in Ohio, I think it was a Hill Emerson poll the other day, that in a theoretical Trump versus Biden matchup, Trump wins by eight points, 48-40, which I thought was pretty astonishing. Uh, who knows if that's exactly accurate, but it's certainly a sign that it hasn't had the kind of political impact that a lot of Democrats were hoping. And I just want to read you a uh, the opening paragraph of a column uh, in the Washington Post today by Gary Abernathy, who's an Ohio newspaper editor who originally endorsed Trump, then 
dropped his uh, uh, support for him uh, after January 6th. And here's what he wrote about the committee hearings. There are few things as irritating as a preacher who just won't end his sermon until someone, anyone, finally steps forward to confess and repent, regardless of how far most minds long ago drifted off to thoughts of football afternoon naps and Sunday dinner. That's what the tedious January 6th committee hearings feel like. What do you make of that? Trump won Ohio over Biden by six, seven, eight points. So him being ahead in Ohio. No, it's a sign that that the needle hasn't moved. Right. Look, if we're expecting anything at this point, six years into this virus infecting our country, anything to take Trump down to 35 or 40 percent, you know, where I think he ought to be. And a lot of people think he ought to be that you're thinking about this wrong. It's just not going to happen. He has a solid base of support. He's going to get somewhere around 44, 43 to 47 percent of the vote if he runs for president and he's the nominee, which he would be in a general election. That's baked in. I mean, he has a very high, you know, floor of support. We are in this country fighting over a very small Exactly. Peace in the middle. It's on the margins here. That's right. You know, we at Yahoo News with YouGov have been polling all of these questions about Republican belief in the big lie, for example, uh, for like 18 months or two years. um, And there has been a small but not insignificant decline. So, so you know, at the outset, it was 66 or 68 percent of Republicans fully believed in in that that the election was stolen, and now it's down to 60% among Republicans. So where is it with independents? You know, those kinds of small changes make all the difference in a country that's as politically and closely divided as the United States is. Bearing in mind that the 2020 election was determined by, you know, less than 30,000 votes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. I'll give you a, 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 you know, one other way to think about it. So let's say um, Liz Cheney in January of next year, after once she's no longer a House member, announces that she's running for the Republican nomination for president against Donald Trump. Is she going to beat him? Is she going to platform have a platform for a year and a half to run around the country attacking him in primaries uh, and getting a bunch of media interest? Yes. And is that platform going to help her? solidify these suburban voters, suburban white voters who have been repelled by Donald Trump, it's going to have an impact. And I think the January 6th committee uh, has had a similar impact. Let's actually go ahead, jump ahead to January 2023, because first of all, all of the Republicans associated with the January 6th committee have had their careers in the House extinguished at this stage of the game. And the likelihood is very strong that the House will be in Republican control. By the same token, the January 6th committee has forged new paths in terms of the uh, ability of committees to subpoena and seek seek massive quantities of information. And they've created a new template for the way committees can be constituted and the way they behave. Should Democrats and should Joe Biden and more particularly Hunter Biden be extremely worried about what the January 6th committee has taught the future Republican majority of the House to do? Yes and no. I think if other committees constituted themselves this way, um, I would say yes. It's an f- extremely effective way to do oversight. 
But I suspect what we'll see is the usual kind of uh, stirrings of ego to pull Congress back and in, into to, to normal business. And what I mean is this committee has functioned so effectively because every member hasn't insisted on having five minutes for an opening statement and getting the, their own chance to question witnesses at these hearings. So you've had these effective presentations where one person presents the evidence, one person questions the witness witnesses, letting counsel ask the questions. And I think when you get back to oversight, you'll see the usual thing where the lowest member on the dais insists on wasting their time asking a bunch of impertinent or non-pertinent questions. So it's a very good template that committees would be smart to follow, but this wasn't rocket science. People have said for years, this is the way Congress ought to conduct itself. And they usually don't because the members on the committees have their own imperatives that are not presenting a case. It's getting attention for themselves. All right. I'll, I'll, I have a dissenting view on this. So <laughs> let me uh, chime in. Look, as effective and as compelling as a lot of the uh, testimony has been, I still have a problem with the fact that, you know, all we've seen are selective excerpts from depositions. We haven't seen the full depositions. There hasn't been any cross examination of any witness that challenges their accounts, which is what one would expect from a real committee investigation. And at the end of the Mike day, the unanimity, the, the unanimity of it all, the fact that everything is unanimous, including the vote on subpoena, I don't know. I find that a little bit creepy. That's one party government. I know you have two, two parties, Republicans. Two there parties two, on yeah, the committee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, one has been rejected by her own constituents and the other is now endorsing Democrats. So that undercuts the idea that there's any bipartisanship here. But I mean, look, it's I, I'm not saying this undercuts the importance of what the committee is doing, but I don't find it an ideal template going forward. Look, I think it won't be. I think you're unlikely to see other committees constituted this way. The next Democratic leader, whoever that is, if it's Pelosi or someone else, is not likely to do the thing that McCarthy did. And it's just a, to all your points, Mike, this is Kevin McCarthy's idiocy that led to the committee being constituted this way. He could have had Republicans on this committee who would have made it would have functioned very differently if there were Republicans there. They couldn't have presented evidence the way they had. And he pulled them all off. I think he set an example that. No leader of the minority is going to be dumb enough. No, to no, no, no. But forward. Pelosi set the example that McCarthy can now do and kick Democrats off of a Republican right. committee, but right, right? a that's, select committee. Yeah, anyway, that, that's yeah. right. But um, uh, he pulled the rest of them off. And Isikoff, you, won't, you won't be that. You won't be. You won't be that dumb. Pining for the halcyon he days the food of. Fights. Uh, Partisan food fights. Like, why can't this be more like Benghazi hearing? Or Whitewater. Or Whitewater. If only Jim Jordan could have been on the committee. I know, we miss Jim Jordan. Yeah. You'll get plenty of them very soon. The January 6th committee's business is not complete yet because, I mean, as we talked about before, they're going to issue the subpoena for Trump, but they also have talked about criminal referrals, unclear based on what... Liz Cheney said at the end of the hearing whether that's actually going to happen. And then they've got a report that they are writing and that they plan to release, uh, I think, sometime in maybe late November. We all remember the 9-11 Commission's report, which had a lot of impact and is, was an incredibly powerful historical record. A, do you think they will or should? And I know this is in some ways a silly question because it doesn't really matter if they uh, make criminal referrals to the Justice Department. But what do you think they're going to do on that? And then talk about 
the report. What kind of report do you think they should write and what impact do you think it, it could have in the short term and, uh, and in the long term? So I think they should make criminal referrals. I think it'll have no impact, no bearing on what DOJ does. But if a committee of Congress finds evidence of criminality, they should make a referral. And so they should just handle it like any other other committee would. I think they should make a report that uh, they should write a report and release a report that lays out the evidence they've found, the conclusions they've drawn for it, recommendations for governance and, and potential new legislation going forward. And that report should contain all of the quotes from uh, witnesses that they've presented, as well as presumably some that they haven't. And then I think they have a, a tougher question. I think they should, you know, DOJ has been clamoring for all the transcripts of the interviews that they have. It's been inexplicable to me that the committee hasn't made those available. They should have done that already. They should certainly make them all available now. And then there's a tougher question, which is, should the committee take all of its transcripts and make them publicly available? Of course, why Congress not? Expires? Why the reason would you why not? not? The reason why not is because there is a criminal investigation going on that involves all of these same players. And you don't want these every witness to know what all the other witnesses have said about them Excuse in testimony me, I thought because you, you have a chance. It's not the on, Congress's job to it, prosecute it, people it, it, or make, it's not, help it's the not, Justice but, Department. But it's also not Congress's but, job but, to ruin prosecutions you you either. Shouldn't, you shouldn't trip your way into destroying a, a criminal case. So that, that but hold on, that, that's the argument for not doing it is you give every witness the opportunity to know what other witnesses have said about their conduct and to tailor their testimony to avoid criminality. Now, the argument for it is public transparency. And if you don't release them now, look, the safe way to be, we're not going to release them now at the end of the criminal investigation, we will do it. You can't do that because if Congress switches, the Republicans will never release them. I think on balance, I would release all of the testimony and hope that it doesn't interfere with the criminal case. But I don't think it's an easy call. Let's actually pull out one important kind of criminal referral that the committee could potentially make that and that I think they're likely to make, which is obstruction of justice and witness tampering. They've clearly been hinting for quite some time, especially uh, right before the Cassidy Hutchinson testimony, that they have evidence of efforts to tamper with their witnesses and to obstruct justice, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the Secret Service issues. Did you see any evidence in the latest hearing or uh, that this is kind of where the committee is going? And what do you think are the odds that the Department of Justice would pick up a kind of more narrow band case like that? Um, I, 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 they made clear that they, or at least they allege that they think there is some potential obstruction in this area. I don't remember which member it was that's, that said it's Schiff, I think. I'll put it this way. I believe now that Cassidy Hutchison told the truth. It looks pretty compelling to me that she told the truth about what the head of the president's detail and Tony Ornato said to her. I think it was Ornato that said to her while the detail was, was sitting there. That seems to be true. That's contradicted. It, it, that contradicts what the Secret Service told reporters on background, whether that contradicts the actual question that Ornato was asked and how he answered it in his testimony. I think it's impossible to say without seeing that. Oftentimes, in the you know, these obstruction cases fall on very narrow, fact-based questions and answers. And so, while it may look obstruction-y based on what we know now, without seeing the the you know black and white what they said, I, I think it's very hard to to draw any conclusions. 
Just on that point, I do not understand why we have not seen public testimony from Engel and Orinato, you know, especially given Cassidy Hutchinson's earlier testimony about what took place in that limousine when Trump got in. Agreed. Or why they haven't been called back to the committee. Yeah. Yeah. Subpoena. Anyway. All right. Last question, just to uh, put you on the spot here. Odds that um, Trump is going to be indicted and when, what do you say? 90%. 90% in the on spring. Mar-a-Lago. On Mar-a-Lago. Yeah. 90% in the late spring in DC. All right. And January 6th, 40%. 40%. 40%. Okay. A little higher than I thought you were going to say. Maybe 30. Anyway, all right. We will hold you to it and have you back. Wait, we've got, we've got so many more. Georgia. Odson oh, well, Georgia. Georgia. I think, I, I, yeah. I think high there. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. But, I, I, but, I would put it at 90%. In yeah. Probably high. <laughs> we will see. But all I, right. I have less, less confidence and conviction in that one than I do in, say, Mar-a-Lago. Ooh, okay. All right, uh, Matt Miller, thanks again. And um, as I say, we will have you back and hold you accountable for what you've said. <laughs> right. Thanks well, very much. Uh, the Issa right. Grant Commission. Is this, is this a grand jury? I wasn't aware. Yeah, I, didn't, I, I didn't have my lawyer sitting outside. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no. No immunity here. You're going to go to Skullduggery Jail. Yeah, that's right. <laughs>